This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, Wait, you're listening? (laughs) Okay. All right. You're listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. Shorts! <laughs> From WNYC. And NPR. Hey, I'm Chad Abumrad. This is Radio Lab, the podcast. It's just me today. Robert is uh, traveling. so um, But I do have a short little story for you. That, actually, it's two stories uh, that I've been thinking about for quite a while. Um, it's about the mysteries of creativity and a piece of music and a neurological condition that unite two people across space and time. The first story begins in the early 1980s in Vancouver, British Columbia, with a woman named Anne Adams, who was a brilliant cell biologist. Oh yes, Anne was highly articulate. That's her husband, Robert Adams. You know, extremely capable with language. She did cancer research. She actually developed a cell line really? that I believe still exists. Wow. So she was very sharp. As a scientist, she was a natural. But then, rather suddenly, at the age of 46, Anne kind of does a 180. Something happened in 86 which changed the course of her life. It all started when their third son, Alex, gets into a really bad car accident. And we were told that he would probably never, ever walk again. Anne decides she's going to take some time off to help him recover, and he does. He does learn to walk again. But while at home, she just decides to quit. To quit science and become a painter. Yeah. Anne made up her mind then and there that she was going to take up art full time. Had she ever painted before? Well, she did a fair amount of it when she was in high school. Which was a very long time ago, so the whole thing struck him as kind of out of the blue, but he rolled with it, and uh, within a short period of time, she had converted a room in their house into a studio, and she was painting... Houses and buildings, little Hmm. churches. Simple at first, but then after that... Brightly colored versions of what you see when you look down the barrel of a microscope. You know, cells, bacteria. After that... Strawberries. A series of paintings involving these blazing red strawberries. For instance... A water faucet, and out of it would be coming a stream of strawberries. There was things called Strawberry Universe, where the strawberries had rings around them like Saturn and so on. And I think there was something like 35 or 36 strawberry paintings. But then she would switch to something else. Even after their son had fully recovered. Even threw away his crutches and went back to school. And kept on painting. And she would work all day long. Ten hours a day, making these paintings that got bigger and bigger and more abstract. And there were times, he says, when he was like... Wow. (laughs) Because for someone who hadn't painted since high school, she was suddenly... So prolific. And uh, it's entirely possible that something was happening to her even then. 
way below the surface. I mean, on the surface, she was just painting, and it was working. People were buying the paintings, she was having solo shows, she was becoming a successful artist. But then, in 1994... She decided, I don't know what gave her this idea, I never knew what gave her any of her ideas, but um, she decided she was going to do... A painting of, well, this. Bolero. Bolero. Yes, yeah, Bolero. Robert says he's not quite sure how it happened, but at some point that year, Anne heard this famous piece by Maurice Ravel, became obsessed, couldn't stop listening to it, then playing it on the piano, then deconstructing it, mapping every pitch and the melody and the bass to a color. Here's, uh, um, here's one page, which isn't very long. This is from her notes. She's got A, silver, A flat, copper, B, leaf green, B flat, metallic green. Eventually, the painting. It was quite a large work, two panels side by side, very electric colors. A blizzard of symbols and triangles, little tooth-type things with marks on them that all mean something, and rectangles and marching. Back and forth across the first panel. There was a triangle in the bottom of each one of the rectangles, and the height of the rectangle represented the loudness. It's an incredibly obsessive translation of the music into visual language. And just like the melody in Bolero, the symbols repeat and repeat and repeat, obsessively getting bigger and bigger and bigger until at the very end of the second panel, things unravel. By the way, her title for the painting was Unraveling Bolero. And here's where things start to get a little spooky. Anne did this at a time when um, she knew nothing about Ravel. She called her piece Unraveling Bolero, having no idea that that's exactly what would happen to Ravel right after he wrote Bolero. Which brings us to story number two. Well, okay, should we jump in? Yeah, please. This is R.B. Orenstein. Professor of music at the Aaron Copeland School of Music at Queens College. He's written about Ravel, performed Ravel, talk to anyone who ever knew Ravel. Uh, he kind of is a, what shall I say, a kind of a living presence inside my head. So, okay, Maurice Ravel is a composer, obviously one of the greats. Born in 1875. Papa was an engineer. Mother was a, from an old Basque family. As in she was Spanish? Yes. Which is why uh, some of his music, like Bolero, does sound a bit Spanish. In any case, Mom encourages him to study music. He goes off to Paris in the 1890s, meets Claude Debussy. And together they sort of invent this style of music, which we now call Impressionism, which was this kind of... Free-floating, almost dreamlike, sensuous. A lot of colors. Very flowery. Yes. But then, like Anne, Ravel makes a kind of shift. 1928. When he was 53, about the same age Anne was when she did the painting. Uh, Ravel is having an absolutely phenomenal year just toured the United States, performed for thousands. He's at the zenith of his creativity. And he's back in France at a beach house. Wearing a pink bathing suit. And story goes, right before he steps out onto the beach, this melody swoops into his head. He runs over to the piano. Takes his index finger and he goes, there it was. It just came to him fully formed? Well, he I don't know if he played the whole melody, but he at least started it off. But here's the shift. When he sat down to flesh the whole thing out, instead of developing the melody, making it super flowery like his other stuff, he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take this melody and repeat it 
again and again and again, and then again some more, and then some more. The theme never changes one note. The only thing that does change is the orchestration, which grows around the melody. Very slowly. Bit by bit. It gets bigger, bigger. More accompaniment, more instruments play the melody. But the melody itself, for 340 bars, never varies. To the point, he says, where the performers... They're, they're ready to see a psychiatrist by the time they're done playing this piece. And Ravel, at the first performance in Paris, some woman screamed out, He's crazy! Which turned out to be, well, not exactly true, but in the neighborhood. Six years after he wrote Bolero, this is 1933, Ravel begins to forget words. He'd always been forgetful, so no one really noticed at first. But then one day at dinner... He grabs the knife by the wrong side. And he doesn't realize it. And he continues to try to eat. Holding the sharp side of the knife and trying to cut with the handle. Then he visits a friend, leaves. Now two hours go by, knock on the door, it's Ravel again. He didn't remember that he'd been there before. Just two hours earlier. Eventually, by 1935, he could not write anymore. Or speak. His language had evaporated. Arby says there are documents where you can see Ravel desperately trying to relearn the alphabet. A, 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 over and over again. Wow. B, B, with a kind of a shaking hand, very small. It's very, very painful to see. Whatever it was that was wrong was getting worse. Here's the weird symmetry. Just like Ravel, six years after finishing her bolero... By 2000, I would say... And also begins to forget words. She would try to say things and couldn't. She would try to find words and couldn't. So how are you today? Fine. (laughs) Eventually, Anne ends up at the University of California, San Francisco. And this was in 2002, and they gave her a bunch of tests. Can you tell me your, your full name, please? And Teresa Adams. There's a video of one of these tests, and in it you can see Anne sitting at a table in a black sweater, gray hair, glasses, very composed. And can you tell me your address? Like someone who's used to knowing the answers to questions that people ask her. For, um... Twenty-three... Which town? Um, Which town? Mm -hmm. Vancouver. Great. (laughs) By the time Anne had come to see us, uh, her communication abilities were markedly diminished. That's Dr. Bruce Miller. He's a neurologist. He runs the Memory and Aging Center at UCSF. Example, we asked her uh, to describe... uh, Okay, and I'd like you to take a look at this picture. A very complex, rich picture with... Take your time. Children with a kite, with a sailboat on the ocean. And please tell me what you see. And if you can, please try to speak in sentences. Anne would be able to say single words with no grammar. She'd go, sailboat. Tree. Boy. Um. Water. People. Kite. Kite. Flag. And uh, that 
four or five words would come out over about a minute's time. She was very frustrated. Both Ann Adams and Maurice Ravel were unraveling in the exact same way, at the exact same speed, to the same soundtrack, you might say, but just roughly 60 years apart. We think he and Ann, down to the very molecular process, had the exact same disease. And he thinks Bolero, the music, and then the painting, in both their cases, was the first symptom of that disease. This takes a couple of steps to explain, so bear with me. But to start, the disease is called frontotemporal dementia. That's Jonah Lehrer, author, regular on our show. And it begins when spindly cells in your frontal cortex... This part kind of right above your forehead. ...start to wither and die. And so your frontal cortex is pockmarked with sometimes visible holes. We know this about Anne from tests and brain scans. We suspect it about Ravel. Because according to Arby, just before he died... On December 28th, 1937... A French surgeon opened up his skull and saw... That one of the lobes of the... Two lobes of the brain had sunk. Because it was disintegrating. Now, in both their cases, the part of the brain, the part of their cortex that got hit, was on the left, which is a part that does a lot of things. Memory. Recalling memories. Finding memories. And most importantly for our story... It governs language. What happens is, as the frontal cortex starts to fall apart, you lose the ability to access language. Now here's the thing about losing language. Our brains, according to Bruce, are basically a series of circuits that are all tightly connected. And when a dominant circuit like language turns on, it's basically wired to turn a bunch of other circuits off, to basically go, shh. To other parts of the brain. We have this constant dance where one circuit uh, or many circuits turn on and then they're obligatorily turning off other circuits. So language acts as a kind of break on other things the brain could be doing, like daydreaming, thinking in images and pictures. But when the language is no longer there to hold things back, often what can happen is that those other parts, like say the visual parts, can just rush forward and suddenly the mind is flooded with images that all of a sudden people have these rich, rich, intense sensations. The world is so beautiful, they need to express it. This is very common. We see a number of patients who become visually obsessed. From every possible walk of life. Investment bankers who have never been interested in art before. Never even walked into an art museum. All of a sudden they decide at the age of 55 to move into a loft. Become an artist. One of the first glimmers of their illness is this insatiable need to create. That's right. How many of these cases have you seen? 50, 60. Whoa. It manifests itself in as many different kinds of art as there are people. But at the end of the day, what all these people have in common is that this explosion of creativity in their heads, well, it's not a free-flowing, loosey-goosey kind of creativity. It's quite mechanical. The repetition, the obsession. They get stuck in a kind of loop, taking one thing and just doing it again and again. Like an Ann Adams painting. Or like Bolero. Bolero. This uh, drive to repeat happens very early in the course of this illness. So he says, what can seem like a simple creative choice to repeat a melody may actually be driven by a condition that you won't even know you have for six years. We think that this had something to do with the very unusual, rhythmic, repetitive sorts of music that Ravel produced. And why the repetition? Where does it come from? Um... I think this is the release of a... Of a Bruce says, program. we don't really know, but he offered up a theory which I find fascinating, which may get to the root of creative obsession of any kind. 
He says there might be several parts of the brain that are held back by the language circuit, and one of them is this very ancient part of our brains. The basal ganglia, the part of the brain we move with. You can call it our reptile brain. This is the part of us that uh, governs, you know, basic behaviors like eating, running. Motor programs that uh, we uh, do repetitively every day. That's all it does. It sends commands saying move, move, eat, eat, run, run. Birds and snakes get by with basically just this part of the brain. Keeps them alive. Now, normally he thinks the language part of us inhibits these habits, these repetitive motor programs. That but when the language part is not there to do the shushing, these motor commands filter up too. So imagine you're one of these people. Your mind is suddenly flooded with pictures, maybe sounds, and it's also flooded with these kinetic repetitive instructions. Move, 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 do it again. And in the early stages of the illness, you still have enough brain to make sense of it all. There's still a lot of cortex that is still available to act upon this desire to repeat. And so you get art that is obsessive and repetitive, yes, but also beautiful and abstract, like Unraveling Bolero. But then as the disease progresses and more of that front humany part fades away, the repetition becomes much simpler. And not creative at all. In the latter stages of a disease, he says, you'll often see patients um, pouring water into a cup a hundred times in a day, squishing ants over and over again. The complexity of the behaviors are diminishing as, as we're losing these uh, parts of the brain that make us so human. It's sort of what you see in Anne's work. Her paintings startle, simple, explode into abstraction, and then get simple again. But what's unusual compared to the other patients is that she kept painting almost all the way to the end. Until literally it was not possible for her to, to hold and direct a, uh, a brush or a pen. That's her husband Robert again. And became progressively paralyzed on the right side of her body. She lost the ability to paint 2005 huh. early. And that, that, that was sad. Towards the end, he says he would go into her studio. And I would see her there in front of a blank canvas. And she wouldn't be doing anything. She would just be looking at it. And I'd come back a couple of hours later, and she still wouldn't have done anything. Hmm. She had lost the ability to do the art. But she hadn't lost the drive. And that, to me, is one of the beautiful parts of Anne's story, that the drive to create can be as primal as the drive to eat, that even after she couldn't move, could barely swallow, she still sat there trying. She had gone downhill so far by that time that, uh, that uh, she was hardly recognizable as, as herself. At some point in the disease, and you can see this in that, that early tape, painting was all she had left. I, I don't have the, the memories of this. Okay. Painting had become literally all she was. Can you tell me what your job is, or are you, are you still working? Uh, I do art. Great. Mm. She died in 2007? Yes, in January of 2007. Thanks to Robert Adams, Bruce Miller at the University of California, San Francisco, and R.B. Ornstein at Queens College. I'm Jad Abumrad. Robert will be back with me next podcast. See you then. Hey, guys.
guys. Here's the credits. Okay. Hi, this is Kaylee Sakai, a Radio Lab listener from Seattle, Washington. Radio Lab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Thanks, guys. Bye. End of message. I'm David Remnick, and each week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, my colleagues and I unpack what's happening in a very complicated world. You'll hear from the New Yorker's award-winning reporters and thinkers, Jelani Cobb on race and justice, Jill Lepore on American history, Vincent Cunningham and Gia Tolentino on culture, Bill McKibben on climate change, and many more. To get the context behind events in the news, listen to the New Yorker Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts.